Hi, everyone, and welcome to the fifth episode of uh, the Meru Media Podcast. Uh, my name is Mukundar Raghavan. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. Today is actually a very special episode. Um, we have Do uh, Professor Joydeep Bhakti with us today, who is the co-author of two great books. One is the book I have right here, which is Philology and Criticism, uh, a, a guide to Mah uh, Mahabharata textual criticism, which he co-wrote with uh, Vishwa Aduluri. And they also have another book, an earlier book, which is kind of a precursor to uh, this one, um, called The Nay Science. Uh, both these books are fantastic works in addressing the main problem with Indology, specifically German Indology, over the past 150 years. And um, particularly, they use the Mahabharata as a canvas on which to to show the uh, inadequacies, the, the failures, and the the wrongful suppositions of uh, Western Indology. So before we get into the the, the core of our conversation, um, let's spend some time trying to uh, understand uh, Professor Bhakshi's background and how he came to this. So Professor uh, Joydeep, may I call you Joydeep? Sure, okay. Okay, um, welcome to the program. Thank you for your time. I know you have so much going on, especially with all your writing and your traveling and your lecturing. Um, so before we get into the meat of what we really want to talk talk about, can you tell our readers kind of what your background is and uh, both educationally uh, and how you came to become uh, so interested in the Mahabharata and the idea of philology and textual criticism? So I have a PhD for, in philosophy from the New School for Social Research. It's a small school in New York. Um, many people may not have heard of it, but it was at the time very famous or very prestigious for studying continental philosophy. That's sort of the German uh, and French tradition of philosophy as opposed to Anglo-American analytic philosophy. So people like Hannah Arendt and Rainer Schurman studied there. And I was very lucky to meet my teacher Vishwa there because he had been Rainer's student. Wow. And I almost everything from Vish. He gave me a very like a strong, coherent reading of the history of Western philosophy. Um, its relationship to Christianity, for example. And so through him, I kind of inherited Reiner's intellectual legacy. Um, the first book we did, The Naissance, it's actually a kind of commentary on Reiner's book, Broken Hegemony. So it's showing how, um, you know, Indology was created, this discipline, this hegemonic science was set up, all the internal contradictions with it, and why it ultimately collapsed in the 20th century. Sure. Um so what's your educational background? How did you, before uh, you got to the new school, um, where were you before then? So I was in Delhi University, actually a small college called St. Stephen's. And um, Vish and I both have studied Western and Indian philosophy. Um, you know, it, it was a mix of Indian and Western philosophy at my undergraduate. At the new school, I then studied mostly Western philosophy. When I came to Germany, I specialized in Heidegger. But Vish and I also consistently throughout studied Indian philosophy, and Vish actually studied it very systematically with a traditional teacher, um, with his Swamiji, who's uh, associated with the Shringeri Math. Okay. So in that sense, we always kept up the work on the Indian philosophy front. Um, for us, there's no distinction. I mean, we had transcended political national identities to begin with. And then this whole idea that you could be one or the other, you, you know, or, or you had to do some kind of comparative work, it didn't make sense to us. Right. I mean, that's 
makes total sense given the fact that uh you know when you get into a larger like idea of philosophy you want to get as much ideas from different people and different cultures because it might really inform how you think about the world um so you kind of explained how you got involved in the western philosophy and um uh indian philosophy so in your time in delhi university i I assume you you spent some time studying like the the shatadarshanas and you know some uh things like that so um the, the way I, I was introduced to Indian philosophy was sort of the standard six systems approach. Yeah. It's kind of, you take historical survey courses, use the standard textbooks, and then one or two aspects of it, you start reading original text, primary sources. Um, obviously, Vedanta is something that you end up doing at some yeah. point. But I actually had interest in Buddhism, so we did a lot of Buddhist philosophy as well. And it was always interesting to go back and forth between them. And then when I met Vish, of course, he was studying with Swamiji. So um, Brahma Sutra, Bhashya, Shankara, yeah. all that became part of the curriculum. That's that's a that's a lot to take in. I mean, that's so much uh, knowledge from different sources. I actually spent one year in Delhi studying in the arts faculty in their master's program, where I did a, a Buddhist and uh, some Vedanta and uh, a Nyaya. So uh, that's where I learned Nagarjuna pretty in-depthly. Um, okay. Yeah. Which kind of blew my mind, actually. It, it made me reconceive or rethink about my own conceptions of the world. And then and then I built it back together with some Nyaya and some Vishishta Dwaita here and there. Um, so what would you consider your your current areas of expertise that you yourself uh, uh, focus on? Um, so we have PhDs in Western philosophy. I mean, Vish now has three PhDs. So he's like, wow. he did, been studying. Um, <laughs> Yeah, his first dissertation was ancient Greek philosophy, so that's his area of specialization. He published a book on Plato, pre-Socratics. Yeah. Um, and he had spent many years going to Society for Classical Studies, so he had this whole background. Um, mine was Heidegger, 20th century continental philosophy. Huh. And, uh, you know, I mentioned that we'd also been doing Indian stuff. And then as Vish was doing his Indian stuff, he came into contact with the Indologists. Yeah. And then we started seeing that, oh, it's not so simple because there are all these presuppositions that are obstructing any kind of dialogue. And in fact, there are people who are committed to this notion of there's an Eastern mind and there's a Western mind, and you know we have to study what, what is specific about this mind. And we found this, I mean, the idea is so gratuitous, right? This kind yeah. of essentializing move. Um, and, and it's so 19th century to even speak of the Eastern mind. So we started looking at the reception of Indian texts and saying, how have debates internal to Christianity, internal to Europe, how have mm-hmm. they affected, how have they been reflected or projected onto Indian texts? You're right. And so that was the science, And then philology and criticism continued there. And now the third one we're working on is a book on the connection between race and history. Interesting. So this is like your, your trilogy, your trifecta of uh, your attack on the Indologists. Um, well, not just Indologists, but generally, I, I think like any sort of study, I guess Orientalism is a better word, right? Like with Edward Said, the whole concept of one, one culture studying the other culture within the lens that they uh, put on themselves, right? With their, you know, the West coming to look at the East in some sense. Um, it reminds me very much of the, I think it's Kipling that said, the, East, uh, the West is the West, the East is the East, and never shall the twine meet. Yeah. Um, which is a very, uh, I think the Indologists somehow think they, they have this particular uh, special uh, glasses or 
vision oh. that they can cut through the everything and they're the one they're the ones that have the key to understanding indian thought um so before we oh if, do you have anything to add to that because before we will jump on i just want you to talk about two things which i think our reader or our listeners in this case might have difficulty um maybe they don't know well, what is philology first and then what uh what, what, two things or three things what is the the classical uh term for philology in, in say the tradition itself what did it come to be in a western sense once we get to the colonial period and then finally what is historicism because these are the kind of like the topics we'll touch upon so philology is actually a word that plato uses yeah and socrates describes himself as the philologos the a lover of speeches mm-hmm. um and of course it's not just a lover of any kind of speech uh, which would be, you know, the, what the rhetoricians do. Right? Yeah. He's interested in speeches that are talking about things like the immortality of the soul. And the the good speech, the good logos is the one that, you know, tells the soul about its immortality, its ultimate destiny, and helps it make that ascent. Sure. So that kind of philology is associated with philanthropy. And Plato, or Socrates, rather contrasts it with misanthropy. Right. We actually had a prologue to the Nescience, which spoke about the origin of the word to show that the way philology is now used as this highly specialized technical science that, you know, take, thinks of itself as a kind of positivist science, does not dialogue with philosophy, does not engage with people's concerns, pretends that it has overcome any kind of metaphysics. It's really what Plato would find as a misanthropy. Okay. And the academic discourse has in some way, it's, it's pretty apparent that it has turned people away from the humanities. And that, that is really what, in the, uh, sorry, the science is trying to counter. Uh-huh. Indology has somehow taken these texts, for example, if you look at the chapter that we have on the Bhagavad Gita, mm. right? The Bhagavad Gita is answering some very important questions. Yeah. Uh, Take it as simply as there's a warrior who's going to face this war. He has some kind of existential crisis. He's worried about killing his family. He's asking questions about the ultimate purpose. What is the meaning of life? Why do I have to do these things? Right. The text is trying to answer these questions. And what do you find in the history of Bhagavad Gita scholarship? This jejun game with saying, you know, which which five verses were the original ones? <laughs> I'm so clever at pointing out that, you know, and it's all speculative. It's, I mean, yes, they've tried to model it on the natural sciences. Yeah. And they take positivism as the model. And they, they try to say, okay, historically, we can show the text was composed like this, but it's completely speculative. No right. two people could agree on anything. They could not agree on the verses. So besides the specific critique of Indology as a discipline, as a science, the science makes this larger argument for a better kind of philology. Okay. Uh, you know, one, one that's respectful of human needs and concerns. Okay. And then what, what is historicism? Um, and, and, and can you maybe talk a little bit about its origin and, and how it came to be applied to India? Yeah, so historicism has several sources. Um, the first is sort of the insight, I think it is uh, Herder who expresses this, that every culture has its own justification and it's completely unique and not comparable with the others. 
And so there's this current of thought that emerges in Germany. Uh, it's influenced by Winkelmann, Herder, um, Schlegel also takes it up, that all understanding has to be relative to a time period. Mm. And nothing sort of transcends its time. Um, this notion of historicism then has major sort of, it, it takes up influences from biblical criticism because there's a desire to show that the only part of the Bible that is trans-historical, universal, is the kerygma, the Annunciation of Christ. Okay. Everything else is historically particular. It's specific mm -hmm. to Judaism, specific to that time period of Judaism. So that's another source from which historicism sort of draws. Ultimately, historicism undermines the sense of any kind of trans-historical value. So in the end, it also turns, I mean, Nietzsche is someone who actually takes up historicism and turns it back onto Christianity. Um, you have people like uh, David Friedrich Strauss who also do that and speak of the historical Christ. Okay. Um, that actually creates an enormous hemorrhaging in the humanities because that kind of heaping on historical knowledge, you know, historical fact upon historical fact, without being able to ask any of the larger questions. Right. It's, it's the end of the humanity. So research piles up, doctoral dissertations pile up, but the humanities serve no purpose anymore other than this little academic specialization thing that's going on. So in the Indian context, you see a massive sort of struggle between what Westerners would mockingly call a perennialist view, mm. which is what Indians always, I think there's also a certain amount of racial prejudice, racial bias that's there. That, yeah. oh, Indians are just perennialists. They believe that their texts existed forever and then they're unwilling to account or acknowledge any kind of historical change. Sure. That, that's a gross caricature. I mean, yeah. let's be frank about that. Um, what Indians are fighting for under this label of perennialism is not that there's been no kind of historical change, huh. but that something about humanity must transcend historical change. Um, you know, there must be some ultimate meaning to life, some ultimate purpose for all of this, right. some ultimate sense that the soul has. Um, Otherwise, we're, we're down to a kind of crass materialism, and, and we see the effects of that today in the world. Sure. Okay. Well, I, I think that gives us both, uh, I mean, it gives our listeners a, a good good jumping off point as we get into this next section when we talk about the Mahabharata. So, um, yeah, let's just, uh, uh, let's jump into it. So, Joydeep, um, now that you guys wanted to use the Mahabharata as a canvas in which to deal with the issues of philology, historicism, and just generally uh, the way that the the West has approached uh, studying uh, Indian uh, texts. Can we, let's talk a little bit itself about the Mahabharata. Um, so what do we know about the Mahabharata overall? And then in particular, do we, what do we know about its composition, like its authors, any time period, any of that stuff? So we don't know the identity of historical authors. Um, this this is like, I'll get into it in, in a bit, but this has been a big debate about who wrote it. What we do know, it was carefully copied and transmitted over centuries. And uh, there was, again, a lot of speculation that Brahmins came and changed the text. And I'll talk about where those prejudices come from. But actually, we see from the manuscripts that there was a 
pretty careful scribal transmission. And the changes that were made were not sort of changing the text completely, but glossing it, adding a few episodes, uh, you know, adding palashrutis, mangalas, those kinds of expansions. Yeah, and yeah. at the same time, there were conscious efforts to organize and seal the canon. So you have um, colophones, you have parvan lists. So ways of like, you know, constantly being aware of the totality of the work. Um, Mahabharata is obviously, as many Indians know, it's revered as Smriti, it's a Panchama Veda. So it sees itself as a living, continuing revelation. Um, as an example of that, I mean, the Bhagavad Gita is thought of as containing the essence of the Upanishads. And not only is it sort of this continuation of the revelation, but it's something very new with the revelation in that revelation is, of course, sacred. Mm. And it's only available to certain people. But Mahabharata is a revelation for all classes. It's, uh, it's called the Sri Shudra Veda, as, as everyone knows, which is that you take this knowledge and find our way to sort of transmit it, disseminate it, explain it so that it becomes universal. Okay. And when we grasp that kind of pedagogic plus philosophic program behind the text, we know that there's some kind of genius behind the text, Yeah. Um, which the Indian text will call the literary figure Vyasa. And Western scholars, of course, came, they, they stumbled massively on this because they took the Homeric question, which had been raging in uh, Homer studies, and they tried to make up a parallel here and say, you know, there's the Vyasa question. And was there a historic Vyasa? Are the Indians completely wrong? And of course, they wanted to say Vyasa was a school, or Vyasa were these Brahmanic redactors. To them, he was just a legend. Uh, and they interpreted this to mean there's no conscious authorship. Anyone could add anything they wanted. Um, so I think um, Van Boytenen says, you know, because these books were bound with thread, yeah. with tools, um, anyone could just open the threads, put in entire things. <laughs> and that's, that's not how texts are transmitted. Yeah. Uh, Wendy Donegas compares Mahabharata to Wikipedia and says, you know, anyone could put in anything. Um, apart from the anachronism, uh, you know, this is yeah. not a task where everyone is literate, everyone has access to the instruments for writing. Um, we know when you look at the manuscript evidence, we know these conjectures are wrong yeah. because of conscious things that you see in the way manuscripts are being copied. Um, for example, they are conscious of variant readings. Um, they will sometimes compare manuscripts and insert uh, uh, extra page saying there is now an additional page or some manuscripts have this reading. So it's very carefully transmitted. Okay. So we don't know much about the author, but the tradition says it's, it's generally Vyasa, right? And then do we have any idea about maybe the dating of when the text might have been uh, composed or not? Or even if there is a historical core, because that's maybe that is the the big, like, problematic question right because yeah. a lot of a lot of a lot of hindus do assume that there was something that happened around 3000 bc or something but is what's the date of composition that or if, if we can know yeah so the most widely sort of cited statistic is 400 bc to 480 that's 800 and, years <laughs> yeah a it's 800 years b everyone cites this date like it's you know fallen from the skies yeah it's actually pure conjecture. There's, there's absolutely no basis for it. It was a scholar called 
Edward Washburn Hopkins. And he came up with these dates. And, um, uh, you know, he, he just arbitrarily made up this table and kind of had 200-year division saying, uh, first, there were Kurules, uh, some Bardic compositions and so on. No mention of Krishna. Then there's a historical, uh, I think, Vrishni hero called Krishna. Then there is Krishna is going to be deified and so on. So he made up this scheme which looks fine in his eyes. And Suktankar came and said, you know, I will say for all practical purposes, this pretentious table is as good as useless. It is yeah. in stark contrast to known, dated, positive facts in the history of Indian texts and of Hinduism. So those dates still, Van Boytenen cites them, um, Romila Thapar cites them, for example. Uh, bizarrely, she attributes them to Suktankar when Suktankar is the one who ridicules those dates. Right. So unfortunately, those dates are still circling. But if you look at the kind of intellectual milieu, the basic program of the Mahabharata, um, it is very close to the Vedas and the Brahmanas. Sure. Right? The whole sacrificial framing is there. Um, there are specific indications that a lot of Upanishadic material is there. So, And this is not just sort of esoteric bits like Bhagavad Gita, Sanat Sujatiya, but throughout it calls itself an Upanishad. Yeah. Um, so the milieu in which it is arising is actually much closer to the time of the composition of the Upanishads, the ideas, the intellectual world that it's um, sort of projecting. Um, some, somewhere like second century BC is a more realistic date. Okay. Now, that sounds, uh, of course, I've pushed it a little forward of Hopkins because he wanted 400 BC. But the reason he wanted 400 BC was because he thought there were these primitive Indo-Germanic or Aryan tribes, and that was yeah. the original. Epic. So that's something that is, is no longer tenable. Um, that's just a myth. That, that's the 19th century myth about the Mahabharata. Yeah. Then also he was going on to about 400 AD, where all the Krishna stuff comes up later. And there's a specific reason they want to put the, push the Krishna stuff out past first century AD. And that's because there was a lot of research by German scholars like Albrecht Weber, saying all the Krishna legends are taken from, from Christ. Christ, right? The yeah. <laughs> so Bala Krishna, you have the young Christ depicted as a baby, etc. Yeah. Uh, from Jesus. So they wanted to very deliberately say, and there's research, uh, Garba was part of it saying, there's an episode called the Narayaniya in the Mahabharata, hmm. where uh, Narada goes to some place that's called Shvetadvipa, the White Island. Yeah. And the, he meets these radiant beings there whose color is sort of white. And obviously, this is a reference to the color of the soul, the purification that's ongoing. Um, you know, it should not be taken as a racial epithet. That, that yeah. would be just, but that's how they took it. And they said, okay, so they went to some island in the Mediterranean. Historian <laughs> Christians were worshiping Christ. Oh my God. Came back and they said, you know, we've been to this mystical island and. Um, it's it's so absurd. I mean, it is so ridiculous that uh, it, it it does sound pretty ridiculous. <laughs> and Barber then said, "No, it's not the Mediterranean. It's Lake ba Baikal or Balkash in Russia." Because uh, travelers' reports, he had never been there, but he said travelers' reports say that the waves are so choppy that the whole water looks white, and that's the ocean of milk is just choppy water. <laughs> you know. 
can't if you can't read mythological narratives you can't read myths at all yeah shouldn't try so uh, as, as we get into we'll talk a little more about the indologists and mm -hmm. uh them later but what are the main themes that you think the mahabharata is really trying to express or uh or deal with so for everyone i mean you ask the man in the street and he's going to say the war or the family conflict huh. that's like that appears central and it's not just the man in the street scholars also keep insisting i was looking at jim fitzgerald's introduction to the chicago translation and he again comes back and says the war is central um but that's pretty reductive because the text is explicitly telling us this is not an ordinary war right, right? um this has a sort of preamble or a precursor it's not a purely human conflict it's another stage in the devas or ayodhya so it is a divinely ordained war it's the eternal conflict that is then being mimetically reenacted on earth um a good way to think about war or why war is heraclitus as war is the father of all this is his yeah. polemos fragment um the whole i mean plato says that homer gave the greeks their gods but in what form did he give them the gods it's really in the form apart from hesiod and his theogony it's really yeah. through the um iliad yeah so somehow in that conflictual situation not only the the gods are revealed but also men are revealed as heroes as standing out as yeah. you know so that whole interaction between is uh, the human the divine is revealed within that conflict so that's how we should approach the mahabharata not as some simple historical war huh. not to say when did this battle happen but as really as a cosmological manifestation that first lets that first sets apart the human and divine spheres and lets you understand them in their interaction um more than that from the indian perspective one is revealed as a changing empirical reality which is subject to time fate causality destruction and obviously beyond that transcending that is brahman which is sort of outside time space causality yeah and not so much i think obviously there's a theophany there's there's the revelation of the gods but also the human condition shows up because humans are caught in the web of time mm. they're struggling to master fate um the text again and again tells you that it is dharma and karma alone that will help you sort of navigate this and get out of here and then there's the separation of brahman and jagat which is going on um and really even down to the um you know we we assume that the human is somehow a basic fundamental unit you can't analyze the human anymore right just a given that's really the presupposition of a lot of our scholarship but the text is really showing you with all these doubling of identities that arjuna is indra's son but he is also pandu's son but then he's also nara and then he also has this special relationship to krishna so the whole notion of a human is being deconstructed yeah if you look at the eight vasus who combine to form bhishma yeah the vasus are the primordial elements and that's in a sense what all bodies are made of right they're, yeah. they're the coming together of the elements which will then also separate when when that 
stage of the cycle is over. Yeah. So Vishwa and I read the Mahabharata as this philosophical analysis of temporal processes of change and becoming. And to really analyze and say, look, when you take away the body, when you split it up into its constituent elements, when you separate out the karma, what is really left over? And that's what the text is doing. Okay. So where does uh, things like, um, I guess, dharma and stuff, where does that play in, in, this, in, in the larger idea? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that because dharma is the absolute central teaching of the Mahabharata. Okay. It's not one theme among others. I mean, it is programmatically there. It's the matrix that organizes the narrative. Even little things like upakhyanas are put in according to a logic of, you know, dharma points need elaboration and then these sub-narratives are told as elaboration. And that dharma itself is, this is consistent with Indian philosophy, that dharma really ultimately means the basic propensity of certain beings, right? Okay. So dharma is kind of an ontological, there's a, an article by Van Buiten and where he says it is the dharma of the sun to shine, of the cow to give milk, of the brahmana to officiate. And the Hindu view of the cosmos is that when everything follows its dharma, yeah. Everything remains within its boundaries and does its assigned role. Then the cosmos can run smoothly. Um, I don't think it's specifically Hindu because the Greeks also have it that the sun will not overstep its bounds. Otherwise, the Arrhenius will hunt him out. Right. This notion of decay, justice, which is organizing the cosmos. Um, so that dharma is then grounded in an ontology or a Brahmavada. And there you can clearly see that the basic overarching philosophy of the Mahabharata, uh, and I'm saying this without hyperbole or, or you know, anachronism, it's Vedantic. Okay. Because we'll talk about Sankhya, Yoga, Vaisheshika, it mentions a whole range of positions. But they are not finished schools. They're sort of options in an ongoing intellectual debate. And overall, it's committed to the unity of being. Mm presenting Brahman theistically as Narayan now. So a constant mediation is going on. And then the overarching aim, of course, is liberation as the final human goal. Right. So what, what is liberation for in the Mahabharata sense? Oh, good question. So uh, the Brahma Sutra concludes the final verse is Napunaravriti, Napunaravriti. So they do not return, they do not return. And this is very strongly there in the Mahabharata because um, the whole text is set up as a cycle. Okay. Um, So you begin with the descent, the Adi Parvan contains a sub-parvan called Adi Vamsavatarana Parvan where they descend into the stage. The gods. The gods and the Dhanavas descend and take on these roles as humans perform this enactment. And then at the end, they all re- return to heaven. So that's a kind of completes the cycle. Yeah. And when they return to heaven, then in the next cycle, they will redescend or descend again. Um, but people who um, achieve moksha sort of fly out. So the motive of flight is there with Garuda who flies up. Uh, Shuka, the parrot, that is Vyasa's son also flies out, uh, breaks open these two mountains. Vyasa cannot follow him because Vyasa is the textual Brahma within the universe of the Mahabharata. So he has to remain. 
So this notion of a pravritti as a cycle um, is, is encoded into the structure of the text. And then moksha is always this leaving behind the cycles of the universe. But, I mean, I, that's very interesting. But it, it, always, it also seems like the Mahabharata is a very worldly text, right? It's asking people to engage with the world in, 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 in the normative uh, requirements that the world sets out. But then it has this tension saying, actually, also focus on moksha, a breaking free of these normative bounds. And how does how how does the text manage those two conflicting themes? So moksha is not, I mean, it's not sort of seen as this kind of, if I egotistically posit myself mm. and say my well-being is the greatest of all, and therefore I want moksha, then in a sense, I'm reifying myself. Yeah. Right? I am affirming myself, asserting myself. And that actually will be an obstacle to moksha. Sure. So Mahabharata doesn't see attention there. It's It really sees the one who continuously does his karma. This is over and over in the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. One who performs his karma and karma yoga is sort of seen as, as sort of reducing your egotism and, uh, you know, and fits into the well-ordered cosmos, those, that dharma creates the preconditions for moksha. Okay. This is a debate that goes back deep into Hinduism, the contrast between the renunciate and the householder. And the, the historical approach is, of course, to say Hinduism was on the side of the householder entirely. Yeah. It's purely sacrificial. It has no notion of salvation, soteriology. And this whole renunciate thing came from Shramana, uh, from, you know, the uh, Jainas, Baudhas, etc. And it's not true because the tension is internal already. Yeah. And Mahabharata is finding a way to mediate between these two demands. Yeah, I, I, I mean, just I'm just going to touch on this point real quick because I think it's really important. Um, a lot of, I, I've actually found that tension to be very incorrect in terms of the Shamana versus Brahmana tension. Um, I, I, I think they were just separate systems. It wasn't as if uh, Jainism came out of uh, a fight against this 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 lacking of Bra in Brahmanism, whatever. They're all part of this cultural world and they talk about it in, di in different ways yeah. and they approach it in different ways. So I, I totally agree with you. I think this false tension that people say that one is a these are shamana faith versus brahmana faith. I don't think that uh, makes sense when you look at it each of them individually too. Um, so we've now discussed a bit about the Mahabharata. I think I want to spend a little bit of time about three topics you brought up, which I which I think not many people. I mean, one of them many people talk about, which is Krishna. They talk about. I want to talk about a little about Krishna, but more about his role in the text, and then a little bit about the Bhagavad Gita, and then most most. I think interesting to me because it's not discussed by most scholars I know, the not ironia. So we'll let's jump into that. Mm -hmm. So um, now now that we discussed the kind of overarching philosophies and themes of Mahabharata, I mean, one thing we actually did not touch upon, which I think many people always think of when they talk about Hinduism or or even the Mahabharata or any of these texts is, you know, simply ahimsa paramodharma. You know, like ahimsa is... Uh, is the greatest dharma in mm -hmm. everything. What is unique about the concept of ahimsa as approached by the Mahabharata, and why is it so important in the text itself? Okay, that's that's just a great question because 
Um, everyone sort of thinks the Mahabharata is a violent book. I think Wendy Darnega has some quote somewhere up on the web where she says, many Hindus think the Gita is a great text. It's not a nice book because, you know, Krishna gets Arjuna to kill all these people. He forces yeah. him to fight. And so there's all this sort of presupposition or preconception that Mahabharata is intrinsically violent. And yet this is the text that has the precept Ahimsa Parama Dharma yeah. central to that text. Um, and, and somehow we have to, I mean, one way people have explained this is to say, well, the parts that say Ahimsa Parama Dharma are just not part of the text. So they came from, you know, these outside traditions, whereas the central text is violent. But Vish actually wrote an article for Journal of Vaishnava Studies where he took up that question and said, you know, are these two different layers or strands of thought in the text? And he said, no, because Ahimsa Parmo Dharma applies in a twofold perspective. As a value, it's the highest dharma. The text mm. is clear that we are enjoined to do this. And it's not just the Mahabharata. Manu also says that, you know, Ahimsa is a value. And um, I think he says, as many... As many hairs on the body of the animal, that many years you will suffer if you kill it for, for food, etc. So there's all these injunctions against violence. But then it's kind of utopian to think violence proceeds solely from man. Yeah. Or it's entirely at our control, you know. Um, when I walk, when I breathe, I am also going to kill something. Yeah. And uh, you can reduce violence, you can be vegetarian, you can be vegan. But some amount of violence is inevitable. So this notion that humans completely control violence and, you know, therefore it can be completely eradicated is a kind of enlightenment illusion. And it's, it's something we've seen. The, um, the problems of that notion of enlightenment subjectivity, I think it, it becomes very apparent with the two great wars. So somehow the Mahabharata realizes that strategies for minimizing violence must be combined with a transformative ontology. Okay. That because you can never fully get rid of violence um, and the universe itself is inherently violent, somehow um, the only way Ahimsa can be fully achieved is by realizing your identity with Brahman, mm. which will transcend time uh, becoming. And that's the ultimate sense in which it is the Paramo Dharma that okay. it is. It is. Uh, so Hinduism kind of avoids utopianism while recommending a praxis of thoughtful living. Okay. So how how does, um, I mean, the, the, they're correct. I mean, the text is very violent, but it also seems that, like you said, there is this this push towards having this virtue of of of, of being nonviolent or non cruel, and yet the text inherently recognizes that all to exist to to exist in this physical world is by its defined nature to be violent, right? You know, like you said, breathing or walking or whatever it is, just every act we do at some level, any resource we take is some sort of violence in, in that so even like the for example the Kandava uh the uh episode is very violent but it's also done for a larger purpose so how does the Mahabharata deal with or maybe it does or doesn't the idea of violence in terms of a yajna or sacrifice with ahimsa because it because they sacrifice pretty regularly and the theme of sacrifice like is kind of overlaid in the Mahabharata too um, that's that's a great question because if you look at the way the text is structured, right, 
Yeah. The core, the core of the books is Arana, which is kind of monumental slaughter. Um, the the text makes no bones about it. If you read the Sri Parvan, you see the lamentation and so on. It's completely aware that this is senseless, horrific slaughter. Yeah. Now that Rana episode is then wrapped up in the Yagna situation. Hmm. Violence is raised and transformed from this perfectly human perspective, which would see it as senseless slaughter, and it's then raised and transformed to some kind of cosmological process that it's part of the ongoing sacrifice, which is there even in uh, you know the. Purusha Sukta, you have the Prajapati uh, sacrificing himself. Yeah. All these things are already in the background that the whole universe is a sacrifice and comes to be through the sacrifice. So, okay, then we raise it to the level of not just Rana, but Rana Yagna. Yeah. And th- that, that has another further mimetic mirroring where there's the sacrifice of snakes by Janamejaya. Um, which has again parallels to the central story. And at that story, what happens is the sacrifice only ends when Astika com- comes up. Yeah. Uh, the Brahmana boy who says, you know, stay and stops the sacrifice of snakes. And that is an ontological cipher. So with at the sacrificial setting, somehow this ontological knowledge must arise. Otherwise, sacrifice is not philosophical. Sacrifice yeah. is not. So sacrifice has to be understood as analysis of reality. Analysis of reality has to, from the constituents of sacrifice, from the violent destruction, has to reveal some kind of reality that is unchanging, ontological, um, true being. Um, That's what the Mahabharata is doing. It's continuously modulating the narrative and showing you there's a perspective in which it's just violence. There's a perspective in which it is sacrificial violence. And finally, from the perspective of the Naimisha Rishis, mm. it's Ahimsa Paramo Dharma. But that's because they have reached that ontological place. Yeah. Uh, someone standing on the Kurukshetra and saying, I won't commit violence is idiotic. I mean, Arjuna tries it with Krishna. And Krishna says, what are, you, what are you going on about? You're a soldier <laughs> in the middle of this. You can't run away from this. Well, yeah, he's like, you, you originally wanted this. I don't know what you're doing now, right? <laughs> Let's, I mean, this is the illusion. This is the modern illusion. So when people criticize Krishna and say he made, he forced Arjuna to fight. Yeah. Right? That's because we live in a time where we think there's an option between the soldier and the civilian. Yeah. We've created that nice, easy distinction. And what would you do to a soldier who's in Iraq, right? Right. You're not going to airlift him out. We don't really care about that. Yeah. Uh, so he, his, he, there's no way he can run to. Yeah, but at the so, same point, at the end, Krishna says to Arjuna, right? Yata ichisi tata kuru, right? You know, he tells him, whatever you wish, you you do. You know, whatever you find to be right. So I think uh, it, it, you're correct that there was no forcing of Krishna to do anything. I mean, Arjuna to do anything. It was laying out of a an argument, of a position, and asking him to do what you want. Well, what, what I was really getting to is that oh. real escape from violence. Huh is not dashing to the north of Kurukshetra to the south of Kurukshetra. <laughs> okay. right? Real escape from violence has to be that Arjuna has to get moksha and he has to transcend. Right. And he has to leave behind the physical body which will die, decompose, decay um, as, as everything does. 
and that's the that's the freedom that's the uh, direction of escape that's being provided in the text well i mean, I mean that makes total sense because, especially when you look at uh, if you run away from battle there's probably a greater violence that might happen uh, yeah. if you run into the battle there's violence you're going to do any anything you do in this world is going to be violent so the only way to get out of it is to get out of the world and 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 like transcend and become one with Brahman, and 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 maybe that's yeah I, I think that's that's a fantastic idea. But let's juxtapose that with ahimsa in the Buddhist or Jain traditions. Mm-hmm. How is it? How does ahimsa of the Mahabharata or even Hinduism? Uh, I mean, let's focus on the Mahabharata. Differ from the Buddhist or Jain ideas of ahimsa. So Mahabharata will go along with it in the sense of control violence as much as possible. Yeah. And this is also in Manu. Manu says that, you know, one should restrict it as much as possible. But ultimately, to do these things is also animal nature. You have to eat to live, etc. Yeah. So the, the, where they separate is ultimately, uh, this is the basic distinction between the Astika and the Nastika schools, is uh-huh. that they separate on the issue of whether there's some reality that transcends. Uh, where Mahabharata will say, yes, Brahman, that you know, there is a way that um, you can leave behind this whole sacrificial universe. Um, there's all this historical scholarship. So Vish addresses this in his uh, JVS article, which huh. says that clearly the, the notion of Ahimsa is coming from outside. I think that's mistaken. I think the notion is there in, in both traditions. And the distinction is not so much on some people are pro-ahimsa and some people are, you know, pro-violence. Yes. How far, what is a realistic strategy and how far can you limit violence is the debate that's going on. Okay. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think that's the bigger thing is uh, in the, in the Mahabharata tradition, Brahman is the ontological way to get out. Uh, you yourself can't do it, right? And the Buddhist sense, it's you understand you're no atma, and therefore you violence kind of goes away. I think Jane's. I ha, I don't I don't fully understand the Jane idea himself fully yet, so I can't comment on it. But yeah, it, it just seemed like there's uh, some strong differences between these. Um, so jumping off from the Mahabharata, let's go back to when we started this conversation about Indology. We touched upon overarching ideas of Indology and Western scholarship in the Indian world. When did the West first interact with the Mahabharata? Um, the first interactions are very small. They're sort of um, excerpts and retellings like Nala and Dhammayanti. Uh, Shakuntala, of course, is very, very popular. Um, that's a piecemeal approach. It doesn't translate into a cohesive interpretive strategy. Yeah. It's only after someone called Christian Lassen, uh, he's a Norwegian, but he's a German Indologist who settles in Bonn and is August Schlegel's student successor. He presents his historical reading of the Mahabharata. And that's when the text acquires a kind of unity in the Western imagination. Um, Obviously, I should say historical in in quotations because um, it has nothing historical about it. But what he says is that um, we now know the principles of his reading. There's an earlier heroic core and there are Brahmanic interpolations. The core is actually what really happened. It's a real historical battle. It's a racial conflict between white Aryans, black natives. Um, this original thing was originally recounted or retold at the king's court. It was about the glories of the brave Aryan knights. 
uh, Brahmins couldn't accept this, so they wanted to re-educate the warriors, turn them into their slaves. They rewrote the epic. They showed that all your success depends on worshipping the Brahmins. And then they added cosmology, new gods, all kinds of ritual, uh, even offensive things like Vyasa has to commit Nioga, etc. And other scholars just took up these ridiculous self-serving theses and ran with it. They just said, yeah, 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 now we have a grasp on the text as a whole. Now we can make sense of all its parts. And they did something similar with the Gita also. Yeah. So, um, I mean, this idea of a core still is very, very prevalent in modern Indology scholarship, right? The, how people talk about this this layering of, of the text. I, I think it was... Was it Fitzgerald who talks about layers in the text uh, at, at different time periods and um, and yeah, it's so it's not just something that exists in the past, still exists today, despite us now knowing that there's no way for us to justify, in any objective sense, any idea of layers. How do people? How do the Indologists do so continually? Um. Well, one of the things that, that you have to immediately acknowledge is that there is no system of peer review okay. in the sense of an independent, objective, critical peer review. It's scholarship by kind of groupthink. So they just decide, we've all agreed they're layers, and therefore anyone who says they aren't layers, or when we read each other's work, the maximum extent we will differ is to say, maybe not 50 BC when this was added, but let's say 40 BC is when it's added. That's how much. And those are the kinds of questions. I'm, I, you're laughing, but this is what we hear at conferences. You know? um, you're saying there's a Sankhya layer, but I would like to say there are two Sankhya layers. There's classical Sankhya and there's epic Sankhya. And then someone will come up and say, well, could there be three? Could there be a proto-Sankhya? So. Huh. The academic game is set up to unfold in a certain way. Um, what, what I always suggest and wish one have done in our work is, well, then look at their criteria. Yeah. See whether this, this stands up to independent analysis. And very often you will find that although they come and say we're going to do independent crit critical research, huh. uh, they're fudging their own criteria because they want to get back to a basic scheme that, you know, it's like the consensus opinion. And they're trying to get back to that and say, okay, we have the same layers that you have with slight adjustments. Sure. So how did the Western scholars view and interpret the Mahabharata in this regard, right? How did they come to it? And after uh, uh, Lawson, right? You said Lawson? After Lawson, how did they come and interpret the Mahabharata? And did they apply the same kind of mechanisms that they maybe did with Homer or uh, with the Bible? Or how does that work? How did, how did it work? In a sense, I mentioned they wanted to sort of pretend that they were like the uh, classical philologists. So they thought they were trying to apply the Homer question and, you know, find the different layers. They were also influenced by biblical criticism, which is Wellenhausen's distinction between the, the different layers of the Hebrew Bible mm. uh, and then come up here and say, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it, it sounds absurd, but it's really there. For example, um, there's a layering that someone has done, uh, Thomas Oberlis at Göttingen has done, where one of the interpolators is called Q. <laughs> and you wonder, 
but q y q right yeah. there's not a letter that the or word that begins with this thing and then you realize he's still sort of trying to pretend that what he's doing is related to wellhaus and then um you know has the q so these kinds of things were going on but basically every single idea that they've had has come from lassen there is not one idea you will find in scholarship in the last 200 years that will not be in some way in an 1837 article that lassen wrote and this was absolutely congenial because it accords so well with all these prejudices they had the prejudice against hinduism lassen has now come up and shown mechanisms of degeneracy he's explained why india didn't develop the way the west did hmm. it works well with the anti brahmanic prejudice remember these are all theologically educated protestants with a lot of anti clerical anti judaic tropes or, or resentments and so he comes and blames the brahmins and says that you know this is why uh, that the country or the text didn't develop properly he gives them a historical framework now historical in this thing because there's no evidence of this race war um it's it's purely a myth yeah but race war is kind of the myth in the 19th century that that sustained the 19th century so now he gives them a different narrative that subsumes the indigenous sense of time or a sense of history and pulls indian civilization into world history right at what point do, does india enter world history it's when these white aryans invade and now you have something called the biracial theory um how do you explain india's position in world history well partly it's advanced but mm. that's because of the aryan element in it and the other half of it is the native element which is backward degenerate primitive so lassen has now taken that biracial theory it was already there his teacher august legel came up with it there's an element of it already in friedrich legel um the elder brother but lassen now gives you historical proof okay it used to just be a theory and now he goes to the mahabharata and says look 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 pandu means white krishna is black this is white and black it's clearly two races there's there's like race war going on you know yeah uh, lassen is strange i mean and and then he like provides a parallel to the 19th century and says the white race has destroyed the black races with similar racial superiority as uh we are now doing it with the red races of america wow so he reifies race he legitimizes racial conquest he also undermines the whole normative structure of hinduism if all the rituals in the mahabharata have nothing to, nothing to do with the text they're made up by brahmins for money and to trick people then hinduism as an soteriological intellectual system goes yeah uh, what a practicing hindu has to say also goes you know now the scholar is more important so in all these ways he kind of takes up the mahabharata and puts it i want in use the phrase into a different economy of meaning sure and it now functions in that economy of meaning and indians themselves will now for example when they try and prove that the mahabharata war really happened yeah they mean by really they mean in history ha huh. um the mahabharata war is no less real for happening in the text than yeah. it is for happening in history because you don't have access to history that's right history also this narrative we project um so lassen is taking the narrative of the war that the indians had 
taking elements out of it and putting them in his narrative, which is this race war, and then saying, so only the elements in the Mahabharata that con correspond to my narrative of race war are real and everything wow. else mythic. Wow. So I, I have another, uh, I, I mean, obviously there's a couple comments here. Um, I, I, I mean, when you lay it out this way, it makes entire sense how when, whenever I've taken the time to read the, like many people that write on history of India or even the, these texts, when they, for example, in the Mahabharata or even uh, Ramayana, they'll talk about Vanadas or Nagas or whatever. Um, most people, they get to the historical core where these were forest tribes or aboriginals or indigenous peoples that were being overrun by Aryan conquerors who were trying to take over their lands. And suddenly Ravana in, in Ramayana becomes this Dravidian um, uh, indigenous Rakshasa king who was who's demonized by these Aryans who rewrote the uh, Ramayana into a way to make him seem evil and Rama seem good. It, I mean, these, th these threads are still pulling today. Completely. And at some point, I mean, there has to be a change of perspective where people realize really a story is not made more real by setting up these equivalences. Yeah. Because Ravana in the text does not become a more real figure if you say actually he was member of X tribe. Right. But so all we're doing is setting up a system of equivalences between one narrative register, mm. which is the text zone or the traditional register. Yeah. Another narrative register, which is thinking in terms of race, thinking in terms of tribes, thinking in terms of these identities. Right. And for us, race is the history. I mean, race is the narrative in our time that has immediate tangible reality. Yeah. And so when people do these kinds of equivalences, they come away feeling, oh, now it's real. Now we know what really happened. Yeah. And, 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 and that point is, is true because for we have no clue what happened in, in many ways about the past. So whether, whether the Mahabharata happened 3000 BC or didn't, we have no idea. So why does it make it any more or less real that the text itself is there? Actually, when people say it's more real, if we can explain it like this, really what they mean is, it's more immediately intelligible to us. Yes. That's, yes. that's really what they mean by real. That oh, now, oh. If, if you explain it in these terms, that Rama was this kind of Aryan king, and yeah. you know, then, I, then I get the meaning of the story. In other words, they're telling you something about themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that means that Indian thought itself has racialized to a great extent. No, and, and this is correct because this is the same, in many ways, the same argument that many, many people, many Christians make, right? To the point of the only difference between our, our, our belief system is it's, it's bounded in history. We, there's a moment in time in which Christ did X, Y, Z, and that is the moment that is the true moment of human history, right? Uh, and for us, I think in many ways, Indians have become so colonized with this idea that we start thinking, oh, well... It has to be that Krishna or Rama lived in this time period for anything that came out of their mouth to be true. Otherwise, yeah, everything yeah. that came out of their mouth in the text is not true. And, yeah. and that, I think, is a real problem that cuts to the core of our own textual tradition, which is not necessarily about a truth being out there, yeah. but something that is that is engaged with in a much more 
deep, esoteric, and individ individualistic way? Yeah. Um, what has to be deconstructed, this is why Vish and I took up the Ne science first before providing positive interpretations. Yeah. There are so many assumptions. History equals the real. Yeah. So right. before you get into this, I have one question because the, the, the second question will delve, delve into that part. I want to first know what was the historical reality that influenced the way that the, the indulgence at the time started mm -hmm. viewing India themselves, right? Because that's I, I, this is kind of what you guys do in your books to yeah. kind of talk about what what made them view India or Mahabharata or the text in that mm -hmm. way. So I think it'll be really great for our listeners to know like do the same things they're trying to impose onto the Mahabharata, what what can we do and say what was their situation that forced them to come to their views? Um, that's a good question. Um, there's a writer called Franz Fanon, who is very, very influential on Vishwa and me when we wrote our work. So let me respond uh, sort of using his ideas a little bit. Okay. The most important historical reality is it's an age of condescension. I mean, uh -huh. we no longer can imagine what, or not to the same extent, what the 19th century is like. But there's this clear distinction between those who have reason and those who are excluded from it. And the Negro, Fanon actually consciously uses this word, the Negro is incapable of articulate speech and his representations are by definition primitive. He has to be shown reality and this can be translated to the Indian context as well, that Indians have to be shown what they really mean when they worship uh, their gods. For example, mm. you know, oh, these are just natural forces and they're worshiping them out of fear because they've not learned to control them as yet. That's kind of the explanation that's given, right? What is Vayu? Vayu is not a named deity, but simply a force of nature that has been anthropomorphized and is now being worshipped. Yeah. That condescension actually survives today. Indology is the last field where you can actively live these racial prejudices. They're actually a principle of science because the whole science consists in this kind of translation. Taking concepts, taking an entire episteme and then reusing it to yours. Okay. With the assumption that the natives or Fanon would say the Negroes don't know what they're talking about. And they, they don't have language, so their language has to be uh, interpreted into a coherent system, which is, of course, uh, the Western one, or the white one, as Fanon says. Um, the second feature is, of course, the missionary agenda. This is mm -hmm. not just racial, but, you know, several Indologists collaborated with Basel and Hull missionary or the missions. But they were also all theologically educated Protestants. Most of them were pastors' sons. They had a very similar background. And they also, their work as contributing to Christianity. Uh, Albrecht Weber, Max Müller, Paul Hacker, they all say this explicitly, that Indology is supposed to serve Christianity. It's supposed to serve the mission. Hmm. Uh, this is not a personal opinion they have. They're quite right, because if you look at the history of Oriental languages and Hebrew studies in Germany, they develop out of Christianity's Christian apologetics and its OT concerns. Why do you need to know Hebrew as a Christian? So that you can interpret the Old Testament in a way different from, and of course, better than uh, the rabbinic tradition would do it. Sure. Um, so something similar is going on. Why all this money into reading, translating, 
collecting Hindu manuscripts, Sanskrit manuscripts, bringing them to Europe, translating them. It's obviously there's an evangelical motivation there. And then also in Germany, very strong is the anti-Judaic and anti-clerical uh, attitudes that I mentioned, yeah. which very easily, there's a lot of literature on this easily projected onto the Brahmins. So the overarching reality of reception has been a sustained attack on Hinduism insofar as it's a Brahmanic system of thought. Um, you'll find exceptions are made. So Buddhism comes out looking relatively good because Buddhism is somehow seen as a precursor to Protestantism. It's seen as a reform movement. Buddha is actually, in many texts, they say he's like Martin Luther, <laughs> um, reforming the corrupt uh, church, etc. With, with no evidence either, so that's... <laughs> but also, people should not forget that this is not, um, you know, there, there's a motivation here, which is that to the extent they undermine traditional pedagogy, Huh. Indologists gain status, authority, positions, money, I mean, the whole thing. So one of the reasons they're doing it is simply pecuniary interest. So touching on that point, if they find Hinduism to be so, so uh, reprehensible or uh, deplorable in their ways, why are they trying to find this Aryan core that they somehow are trying to connect to? I, yeah. Uh, that's, that's just a great question. It's a brilliant question because um, partly this whole work of showing, so remember the kind of, the way in which um, Hinduism is deplorable or it has to be shown to be deplorable has something to do with Christian supersessionism, mm. which is this notion that Christianity replaces the earlier standards of revelation, it re replaces religion, right? Yeah. So it's not enough to just say Hinduism is wrong, but somehow to have a narrative of how it has been superseded. And the Aryan thing gives them a hook into that. It allows them to tell a co coherent story of Hinduism, where it starts with some of the right elements. It starts with the elements of the true revelation, which is coming from the Aryan thing. And then, of course, the black element crosses over, the Brahmins take over, and so Hinduism doesn't develop, or Indian thought does not develop. So mm. you have a kind of precursor of rational, theistic, or monotheistic thought in, in the earliest strata of these texts, and they're always trying to recover those strata. I see. And um, that becomes the way that Indian thought is subsumed. So it will not be... Christianity, the Christian element in Indology will not leave Hinduism outside and say, okay, we're just not interested in it. Yeah. it take it up precisely to sh bring it into its history and say, but then it was not the final form or somehow it took the wrong turn. Sure. I, I think you guys also bring up in your book uh, that it was also the political uh, element at the time too, right? The German the German identity itself was under attack and their, their sense of self-worth and... Because I think that at this time, the Kaiser uh, had a lot of issues and, and that political uh, blowback from all that, right? So I, I, I'm sure that played a role in, in, their, in their trying to connect to an older culture to say that we were somehow magnificent before, yeah. too. Yeah. So the, getting back to the, this question uh, that, we, that I kind of interrupted you on slight, uh, uh, um, earlier, 
So what are the major flaws in the way they're approaching or their historical approach to uh, the, I mean, basically what are the flaws to historicism within the Mahabharata context? Um, there's like a couple that we obviously split up within the science and philology and criticism, yeah. two parts that we did this. Um, but let me start with the most basic problem. Yeah. To approach any text, I mean, forget the Mahabharata, any text with this level of prejudice, there's mm. going to be no dialogue. Yeah. And for 200 years, what we saw is a Western monologue where the whole point of reading texts, as I said, was to assure themselves of their cultural superiority. Mm. We are scientific, we are rational, we know what these texts really say. So we are the elect who are called on to understand the dark half of humanity. Um, you know, that's sort of the, the basic... Um, premise of Indology. Um, many, even today, the reason you join Indology, you enroll in Indology departments, is to participate in this racial experience. Yeah. If you think about it, a degree in Indology teaches less about Indian texts, philosophy, literature, or culture than traditional education. If you go and get, go to a Sanskrit Patshala and then you, uh, you know, study with a traditional teacher, you will know, and, and many of the better Western scholars have Ultimately, if you look at where they're, when they're correct, where their knowledge is coming from, it's coming from Indian sources. <laughs> okay. When, when they're original, they're not right, and when they're right, they're not original. Right. Let's put it that way. Um, it also does not teach you textual criticism. So they came to India and sort of said, oh, this is all traditional. We have new critical methods. Yeah. Um, and we are able to bring this science to the text Philology and criticism showed there's no textual criticism. They yeah. really have made basic blunders, uh, huge, huge errors. So what then is the appeal of Indology, right? Um, you start wondering why people do it. And I remember I mentioned Fanon? Yeah. He has this great concept he calls lactification, um, which is a process of whitening. And okay. It's about how a black woman undergoes lactification when she dates a white man, right? Because in her own, own self-understanding, in her social status, she begins to move across this racial barrier. I think a good way to understand the appeal of Indology is it offers Indians degrees in lactification. Interesting. You're, you're fair and lovely cream for your mind. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a great, great phrase. That's, that's really, you know, why go, why put fair and lovely on your face when you can go to the source of whiteness itself and apply it internally? Yeah. And that's, so you learn to speak about your tradition like an outsider with a kind of distaste. Um, you learn to disparage texts. You learn to tear apart texts, uh, you know, and apply the same critical method. Now, that critical method doesn't work. It's not scientific. It doesn't teach anyone. It doesn't ennoble anyone to take apart a text. Yeah. So the only pleasure is I'm doing something that a Western scholar is doing, lactification. Mm. I'm, I'm now doing something very uh, white. I'm becoming white by doing this. You learn to say, oh, we don't believe in these gods. You know, uh, that's it's all for the simple minded people. And I always say, Vish and I always say, Ram and Roy was the first thoroughly lactified Hindu. Yeah. <laughs> With Brahmo Samaj, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 
everything he did, he translated into perfectly Christian concepts. And there was only the veil of, you know, this, this posture that I'm standing up on behalf of the Hindu community in it. No Hindu would recognize any of the things he was saying. You're right. You know, that the, we don't believe in this plurality of gods. We're not polytheists. We worship the one true God. Yeah. In, it, it makes no sense. But, but that is what they wanted to hear. And, that's, and some of these lactified people were willing to provide that. And, and we still see that today, right? Like a lot of Indians will say, oh, we're not polytheists. We, we all worship one God in many forms and things like that. It's a way to justify it instead of saying even our concepts of God. Brahman is not God in the way yeah. that like they think of God in the Western sense. It's a very yeah. different concept, right? So Brahman is the one that becomes all these multiple entities. It's not... Even all these gods, we're still polytheistic, and we, and, I, and sometimes I have to educate people about it and be like, don't be afraid of the of our own traditions and our own own history, and and stop pandering to this world. I mean, Edward Said does a really good job of talking about it when it comes to you know uh, studies that particularly applied to the Middle East. But yeah. I, I think I think your studies are just as important at a in many ways a, a much more. It's it's not it's it's much more uh, it's broad but it's also very subtle because you're attacking the underpinnings of how scholars who view our own traditions view them and then how they like trans transmit that to all of us yeah. and how we have for generations been you know yoked by these uh, indologists into believing kind of what they believe and you know it's a great 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 thing you guys are doing for us. Um, I just want to add, look at the way that question is framed. When you are told, do you believe in all these gods are the one true God? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no good way to answer that question. No, right? It's a very terrible question. Yeah, same thing with the Mahabharata. Do you believe it? Have, it it's historical or is it just myth? Yeah. The question, the question is a setup. Yeah, because and, it's a false dichotomy. And, and, you know, really, we should say, explain your history or explain your one true God. Yeah. And so, uh, no, I, I mean, this is a, um, I, I really enjoyed this. I want to jump into uh, the, the final section, just talk about, like, how we're, how the response has been to your work and things like that. So uh, let's do that. Okay. Um, so. Joydeep, after you guys have written both your last two books, what has been the response to your work in academia, both in the in the West, so Europe and America, um, and and India, if 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 there has been any? So, except like the professional endologists, everyone loved our books. Everyone so loved our in academia. So, like, so so you have your group of endologists, and then the rest of academia. So, endologists didn't like it. Endologists didn't like it. People in philosophy liked it. People in philology liked it. People in Judaic studies liked it. People in German studies liked it. Historians liked it because, I mean, if you don't have a chip on your shoulder or you don't have an axe to grind, yeah. uh, this is interesting new research, right? There's yeah. a lot of detailed work. A lot of translation has gone into this. A lot of archival work has gone into this. And we're bringing a perspective that people haven't had before. Yeah. Um, and these things just needed to be said. Uh, people saw our work as original, they saw it as, they compared it with Nietzsche's birth of tragedy, which is, I think, legitimate because that was an inspiration. Um, so I just want to, before you continue, I just want to let the people know. So this book is rather big, uh, if you can see it. About a third 
the amount of work that went into it, about a third of this book is just appendices and bibliography of all the so sources and and um, the research they've done. So it's in a monumentally huge work. Again, philology and criticism. Um, but sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to let people know how much work you guys put into this. Um, Vish and I, you know, sometimes we send our um, work out to peers and in philosophy and German studies to read. Yeah. One of the sweetest comments uh, I got was from a friend. Uh, he's a professor uh, in, in uh, Texas. And he wrote back with like the comment function on Word. Yeah. And he's, it was just the introduction, which is about one paragraph. Huh. And he had put a comment there saying, I will, I will only remind you that you are already at note 20 and we are still within the introduction. <laughs> That one paragraph, you know, every sentence had about two or three footnotes uh, or notes attached to it. But Vish and I, the way we work, we don't make, I mean, the claims are big. We're yeah. aware it's are big, but then they have to be backed up. Absolutely. And that's where I think um, Indologists went wrong because first for them, what we're doing is completely unprecedented, right? Two Indians critiquing Western scholarship um, turning the lens back on Indology, it's not done. The expectation is an Indian, you're supposed to be very grateful, very meek. You're supposed to thank them for critically expounding Indian texts. The well-bred Indian actually gets up and apologizes and says, oh, I'm so religious. I'm, you know, dogmatic, confessionally bound. Yeah. I, he has to carry a heavy cross for caste. These are sort of the established racial rules. Um, instead, we're using our knowledge of intellectual history to ask questions about this whole discipline. We're saying, how are you scientific? How is this universal? Um, they really experience shame at being caught out in a racial game. Sure, sure. And they got angry because they felt shame. They got angry. Then from this anger came a desire to put back the categories they were used to. So, you know, for example, accusing people of Hindutva, this has become for us, for Vish and me, it's just now code for the fact that someone is trying to reassert racial privilege. Yeah. And the way it's usually done um, is not even to call it, say it outright, because they know that that will never stick. Yeah. But to warn us and say, don't forget your skin is brown, right? Yeah. As a brown skin person, you're permanently subject to the accusation or the suspicion Therefore, behave in a way that is consonant with the values we have. Right. And Vish and I just look at them and say, you know what? We're calling your bluff. Right. Go ahead. And I mean, the work you've done is, is, I mean, it took me a long time to read this book. And it's not an easy book because it's so textual and so very scholarly. It's, it's, it's unlike many other books I've read in terms, of, especially in the, Mahabharata studies where they might have at the end maybe 10, 15 pages of, of, of notes or whatever. You have over like, I think 150 or something. Yeah, we have like, I think 2000 notes in each book. On this issue of Hindutva, I wanted to say, I forget where I read it, huh. but there is definitely, it is not Fanon, but another uh, uh, writer of Negritude. And I read this somewhere, but I can't give you the citation. He said somewhere that the black man lives in fear of the word Negro. Yeah. Right. He models his entire behavior because that's the huge like slap in the face. Sure. 
that that's the worst word you can call him and so that word even when it's not said hmm. precisely not being said it's always hovering over you as a threat right and so it conditions your behavior and i forget where vishan i got this from but we realize hindutva in a way functions like that word um it's a permanent threat that's hovering in the air and conditions people's behavior right and um one of the things that has to be done is to just point out that this this has now become a form of racial control sure and there are legitimate instances in which you know people are not hindutva to begin with no. um, it's an ideology you can subscribe to an ideology you can have sympathy for an ideology you can have political connections those are different issues but to merely call someone hindutva sh- shows you how that word is mutated now in, yeah in kind of racial slur i think in, in many ways i you know i i find it very similar like that in the way we talk about it in the states in the us right like when someone has a right wing view we instantly call him a nazi it's it's like this group that we just want to say that's so evil that and they were evil and they they they're way back but there are things that a lot of people subscribe to um that aren't nazis that they might have a more right leaning but we have to engage in dialogue with them so before you call someone a name understand what they're saying in the first place right and i think with hindutva the immediate immediate response is also the moment you are sympathetic to hindu causes or the identity of 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 a cultural disappearing and trying to do something to maintain a culture because i mean nazism is not about culture that's just about race when you talk about hindutva oh go ahead you what i'm pointing out is it's not even related to being sympathetic to hinduism in any okay. sense because if you read the nay science yeah right there's not one element that's saying mahabharata is this is the traditional view yeah. or saying this is what hinduism is both books are completely from the perspective of western scholarship absolutely both books are rooted that because this is vishwas and my background is western philosophy uh, 20th century continental when someone writes a book critiquing you from that perspective right people who are educated and live in the west to then come up with this term makes no sense i no, mean it makes no, it makes no sense it reminds me of also what's you know there's there's a lot of thinkers out there like even someone like sam harris or whatever like half the time people consider him alt right or nazi or whatever they they just use these terms to stifle anybody that is oppressing or reacting against the mainstream and what you guys are doing is exact same thing right there's this this is entire edifice that's been built over 200 years and you two are one one of the few standing there facing it with a shovel trying to yeah. dig underneath to show the foundation's weak so what yeah. are you going to have people throw stones at you from the top of the edifice calling you you know whatever they can to get you to back away from keep digging and and the work you're doing is is it's exposing this huge this thing that looks very very nice on the outside but when you get to look the core and the the structure of it it's built on a house of cards or a cloud or or someone's whimsical fantasy right and 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 i think that's where as we get into as you get more and more people to read your work and maybe listen to our podcast and listen to what uh your lectures that's what i that's what i took from your book you weren't you weren't you weren't shooting a view that no this is only the traditional scholarship of mahabharata is correct or this view is correct it's no the way you western indology have been doing it it's wrong yeah 
everything else might be right or wrong. That's not a different question. But the way yeah. you're doing it is wrong. Yeah. So I, I think that I love the fact that you have so much support from the rest of academia. Uh, and and, and all just fine. Whether or not they support it, that doesn't matter. But what else have you, have you found a difference with the West and the East in terms of the support? Um, people in India liked what we did. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there's been uh, tremendous support there. If you're asking about the status of these kinds of studies in India, yeah. um, there there's a problem because, unfortunately, India is almost a generation behind the West. So if you look at, and I mean specifically in the humanities, obviously, if you look at the natural sciences, you look at IT, you look at, yeah. you know, software, uh, medicine, anything, Indians very quickly assimilated these sciences right. and became masters in them. Somehow that didn't happen in the humanities. Instead of Indians sort of saying, you know, just as we've gotten MBBS degrees, let's go and get MA PhDs and learn this whole idiom. Um, so whereas global philosophy and race theory are current here, Indian universities will still teach a curriculum of mainly dead European philosophers and not right. even in a kind of critical way. So slogans, no, I mean, sorry, students will know slogans, right? They will, yeah. There will be debates about right and left. But who's reading Hegel, seriously? I mean, who could have an intelligent discussion about Hegel? They can't. Right. Some of them have not read their Marx, but everyone is a Marxist. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, the same thing for Sanskrit texts. I mean, the only way they can receive these texts now is through orientalist lenses or filtered through the orientalist. So um, everyone praises Max Muller and everyone knows that one quote by him, you know, if anyone asked me under which sky the human mind developed, I would yeah. say it is India. And they love that sentence. Yeah. They love the sentence where Schlegel says everything, absolutely everything came from India, um, which everyone quotes. But the fact that he made that sentence or statement in the context of excluding black Africa from rationality yeah. and saying that European culture comes from India, Egyptian culture comes from India, Chinese culture comes from India. We all come from this God-given divine speech and black Africa doesn't. Yeah. Right? That's the context of that statement. Um, that's the context of his whole interest in proving an Indian origin for the lang uh, European family of languages. Those things are not mentioned. So we're not teaching these things in, in a, an atmosphere of critical engagement with right. them. And, uh, you know, people say BJP Congress, it doesn't matter who's, at, who's in power at the center, the veneration of Europeans continues. Right. Rish and I, I think it's been now four years since we wrote the NAE Science. So we've been going to conferences in India. I'm not sure if I fully correct on this because I don't remember, I don't follow Indian politics, but I somehow think conferences were both Congress conferences and BJP conferences. I somehow have this rec recollection that, um, you know, we've been to conferences. It doesn't matter who's organizing the conference. Yeah. Um, there has to be, it's an obligation. You have to have one Sanskritist from every European country. Yeah. And that's how we've been given emails. Like uh, Vishwa is the, one from America, they will say, do you know someone in Germany? Or I'm the one from Germany. And then they say, can you give us a country, Polish, uh, Czech Republic, uh, you know, Croatia, et cetera, et cetera, France. 
So there has to be one obligatory Sanskrit from every European country. Meanwhile, Africa is completely ignored, right? Yeah. No one's saying, look, there are 196 countries in the world, I'm guessing roughly. Um, let's have 196 Sanskritists. Yeah. The demand is always in terms of European Sanskritists. So that... European or American, yeah. Yeah. That bias continues, and I think Indologists trade a lot on that. They encourage that in subtle ways. Yeah. Uh, because it means funding, it means prize money for them, it means honors for them, so they encourage it. And then I, of course, will not even speak of the Indians who kind of break out in hives when someone mentions the Ramayana, because there's also that whole section of Indians that um, really has problems with their own texts or is ashamed of these texts. Yeah. Don't know what's in them. Yeah. But, uh, the very mention of the text sort of is problematic for them. And so they found uh, what Vish and I were doing, that we were willing, just that much, willing to reopen the issue of Indian texts. Yeah. Was for them threatening, you know. And this had, was, I, I'm assuming this would be like something like the people that DMK supporters or something like that in Tamil Nadu or, uh, or things like that. I mean, I don't know what the political affiliation was i just i get these things by people forwarding emails or sure. forward tweets to me and saying this is what they've said but there's this enormous all wish and i are pleading for is let's look at these texts we don't have to agree with everything that's in them right not even all of it has to make sense to us obviously with like the huge time differences that separate us not all of the texts will make sense right but some notion of a classical heritage that there might be something interesting in these texts that they've been read for centuries, preserved for centuries, uh, you know, let's take a look. That right. becomes problematic. Um, okay. and, and that's, I think, purely down to internalized colonization. I, I can't see another explanation for it. Oh, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. So jumping off of that, how, how did your work impact the current understanding and engagement with the Mahabharata in, in either the scholarly field or um, in the lay field? We wanted, I mean, this was the initial project. Vish was reading the Mahabharata philosophically and he wanted to engage with that text and he found he couldn't because of these prejudices, right? That it's not a text. The minute you try and read it as a text, well, then you're one of those idiotic Indians who says Vyasa wrote the whole thing. Yeah. And of course, we know, ha, 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 that's so ridiculous. Yeah. So all these cliches were coming up. I mean, Vishwastala's letters, emails that were written to him by professors saying, you seem to believe Vyasa wrote it all. Yeah. And, and which is such a racist stereotype. Um, I won't mention who sent this email, but it's a professor who teaches in Germany. Um, so... Those kinds of things meant that first, to return to, to the Mahabharata, we had to deconstruct a canon of knowledge, of method that was created in 19th century Europe. Mm. Before embarking on positive interpretations, we had to write the science, show where these dogmas were coming from, how racist sentiments, anti-Semitic, anti-Brahmanic prejudices were there, and how that had shaped the whole epistemic. And then the book you mentioned, Philology and Criticism, we showed that even today, right, you can say, okay, that was the 19th century. But even today, these prejudices 
have survived in a thinly disguised form, thinly veiled form. That, for example, when scholars try by hook or by crook to prove a Brahmanic redaction, mm. and all their arguments are wrong, why are they doing it? Right? What is what is why they vested in this notion of a Brahmanic um, redaction? So, sure. when scholars use words like textual critical. Uh, text historical method, textual history, we should really, really, your ears should prick up and you should be suspicious and say, what does he mean by critical? Because critical always means remove the Brahmanic, get back to the bardic. Um, there are silly terms that you should be aware of, oral bardic epic, kshatriya epic, Brahmanic redaction, normative redaction, textual makeover, all these terms. Sure. Uh, They've made some spectacular errors by trying to second-guess Suktankar. So Suktankar takes up the methods of textual criticism and says, look, this is the best I can do. Right. This is the oldest form of the text I can go to. And, you know, there's anything beyond that is going to be speculation because the manuscript material only lets me go back so far. Right. In that sense, he's the greatest Mahabharata scholar since Nilakantha because he's the only one who had that kind of overview of the tradition um, most scholars today who try to second-guess Suktankar haven't even looked at one manuscript. Right. So they try and second-guess Nilakantha. What is Nilakantha's knowledge of the Sanskritic tradition? What is your knowledge? Right. You know, he was just immersed in that. Um, so this is not just my view. Vish also thinks Suktankar is the greatest Mahabharata commentator of our time, and he is the one who like brings back the Mahabharata after he completes his parts of the critical edition, he gives these four lectures on the meaning of the Mahabharata. I forget if it's four or five, uh, four chapters, but I think five lectures were planned probably. And uh, he massively critiques Oldenburg, uh, Goldstücker, Lassen, and he says, you know, these, these silly theories that they've come up with, and the text is something greater and better than this. And once those prejudices are removed, um, the Mahabharata will just shine forth again. Yeah, it, it's a work of art. It's a brilliant intellectual creation. Yeah, when they say in the first book, the Anukramani Parvan, they say that you know, fine words adorn it, uh, and meters adorn it. It is praised by the seers. This is not just some kind of hyperbolic praise. It is. It is the whole tradition has seen it as a work of great value, great Absolutely. intellectual. Yes. You have to learn all the sciences to to be able to explicate it fully. Um, when a text is telling you that, a whole tradition is telling you the value of this work, it takes an enormous amount of arrogance to come up and say, oh, this is a stupid work. Oh, absolutely. This, yeah. this, this is, and that's only possible. It was only possible in the 19th century that you could go up to a culture and take its most valued possession and say, haha, what, what's in this book? Right. And right. that's that's the condescension that's there in scholarship. And that still persists today. Yeah. And 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 has your work impacted that at all uh, that you've seen yet? Hugely in the sense that two two ways, even if we've made it problematic. So that condescension was there's a German word salon fage. OK, something that was something you could openly say in a salon. OK. Right. Uh, so, so it's something that was sort of, I'll translate it as drawing room tolerable. Okay. Or drawing room acceptable. 
the kinds of things that people could say that were considered salon fish are no longer acceptable. Right. So in a sense, we see ourselves, our workers, like the various movements in the U.S. right now, which are making statements that a few years ago no one thought were problematic. Right. Suddenly pointing out, hey, wait a minute, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you can't say these things. So our work is impacted in the sense that um, that level of open racism, that level of mockery has become very problematic. Okay. They know we will call them out on them. We, we watch all the lists. We track their work. We, Vishwa has hired, like, uh, what's it called? A military historian to go into Nazi archives and keep all the material ready. So we, like, track all that stuff. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a huge and expensive task. And, you know, Vish has really, really dedicated his life to this. Yeah. And as, as he says, the only way this can continue is, or is, is for dialogue is we have to become historically self-aware. We have right. to be ethical. We have to think about, is it, Vish has this one interview where he says, you know, is it acceptable to perform autopsies on the living spines of traditions? And That's it's a really good analogy. Yeah. I mean, when a tradition... By what right? I mean, do you march into a culture, take its scriptures, texts that it holds extremely dear, and then, you know, cut them up, ridicule them, rubbish them, uh, say these, these, these are nonsensical texts, uh, dismiss the commentarial tradition. So many Indologists still think they can continue Indology in this mode. They will bait Indians. Yeah. They will annoy them online. They will say offensive things about Rama or Ramayana. And then they will hope for the famous fatwa, right? So they're doing it provocatively, hoping that their books will be burned or someone will say something like, you know, that person should be killed. And that notoriety helps them. It, Absolutely. it propels them into academia. It propels them into a career. Yeah. But scholars have to collectively, collectively it's damaging to scholarship. Right, yeah. so the particular individual benefits, but the discipline as a whole suffers. Sure, and we just have to decide: is Indology part of the humanities, or is it a social science with interventionist concerns? Right, and um, Vish and I, our criticism is very, very uh, fair, egalitarian, because we don't exempt Indians from this critique. Um, sure, I, I mentioned the fact that you know, look at all these government conferences. If Sanskrit is such a great language, how come you aren't opening Sanskrit schools in Africa? Right. right? What is your issue with having Africans come to India? Um, these are things that need to be addressed. But same way, we, uh, you know, look at Didi Kosambi, right? All the work he did on Mahabharata and Bhagavad Gita. What's really his contribution to Marxist ideology? He doesn't know it. He's not contributed anything original. No. So he somehow sort of absorbed uncritically some, not even real Marxism, just some yeah. true version of Marxism, and then took up a text like the Mahabharata and said, okay, Nagas, Nagas are being burned. Who gets burned? Low-class people get burned. Yeah. It's a tribe. I mean, this is not Marxism. This is not historical scholarship. This is nothing. This is not literary studies. And this is not reading. This is vandalism masquerading as intellectualism. RSS so, Sharma does the same thing too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, he's Romeo Tapor's uh, 
Uh, I think she studied under him. Okay. Uh, he was also a Marxist historian who spent a lot of time going through uh, the Ramayana, the status of women in the epics and things of that nature, or status of of, of other uh, of castes in the, uh, or whatever in the epics, reading as if it's a historical document. Yes, yes kind of reductive historical readings, uh, these kinds of simplistic equations. Yeah. It's not even showing a very good grasp of Marxism, you yeah. know. It's, it's just the ability to, to use Marxism to, to tear apart the text. Sure, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're, we're ending closer to our time. We've been uh, going for a while. So I just have two final questions, and then, uh, and then we can stop. Um, so what is our what is, how, do you rec- how do you recommend... We address and engage with the text now, and what should be our takeaway from what what we've uh, discussed today? Um, <laughs> let me put it this way: to engage with the text, the text is now very different from us, or yeah. distant from us. Um, there's been colonization, there's been conquest, there's been Western education. Frameworks of reception have been broken, right? So. It has become, uh, other than you're in one of those very traditional families that never lost its contact with these texts. Yeah. Never stopped to exist in a Hindu cosmology or mm. a Hindu worldview. It's impossible to read these texts straightforwardly. Yeah. When you try and do that, we project contemporary social political stuff onto them. Uh, you know, our language, our idiom, etc., gets projected. And then you get these weird hybrid kind of understandings like Vahanas are clearly airplanes. <laughs> Astras are nuclear missiles. And in ancient India, we had nuclear missiles. Yeah. Uh, giving calendric dates for Bhishma's death, Krishna's avatara. These are more examples of what Vishen I call a hybrid understanding. Yeah. Um, now, Orientalists will come in like uh, Stephanie Jameson. She's one of the editors of uh, or one of the office bearers of American Oriental Society. Yeah. Um, they come and mock Indians for this and giggle. But really, the deeper ethical question we have to ask is who took away their interpretive frameworks, right? Yeah. Who destroyed the language that Indians spoke in the sense of the semantic system of meanings that Indians were comfortable with? And isn't the problem really coming up from the fact that they're being forced now? to give an explanation, they have to transpose concepts that made sense in their episteme into a foreign episteme. Right. And they're being forced to do that. And forced to do that by strangers who anyway think their episteme is the only normative one. Right. So it's easy to mock these hybrid phenomena, but really it's reflecting a kind of power imbalance, power disbalance. Um, that's why Vishen and I didn't even embark on ex- explaining the Mahabharata in any sense in the nascience. We first yeah. knew completely deconstruct the Western framework in which the text was being seen. And that said, the second thing I said, I'll mention two points. So the texts are distant from us. Yeah. But in a sense, ancient texts have always been there, will always be there. They still make a claim on us, you know. Um, they are the reason we have scholarship in the humanities and not vice versa. The reason anyone reads a moron like Albrecht Weber, <laughs> Albrecht Weber has said something about the Brahmanas or about the Mahabharata. Yeah. No one's reading Albrecht Weber to find out what he uh, uh, really said or thought on his own. 
Yeah. I'm one of the only people who specialized and has looked at like even his letters and his uh, private correspondence and handwritten notes. But other than me, I don't think anyone cares for Alpresh Um And Sukhtankar said once, I think this is on the meaning of the Mahabharata, he says, what is the secret of this text? That after 2000 years, India feels she cannot have enough of it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's ridiculous to say this might perchance happen. I think he has this phrase, he says, the wise, the lucubrations of the wise acres that their works will ever be remembered. And he's right. I mean, they're never going to be remembered. And it, they are the reason we have the humanities. And because of these ancient texts being there, in a yeah. sense, they're still closer to us than we ourselves. I mean, Absolutely. we exist thinking that, you know, we are now foreign and alienated from these texts. But Sukhtankar also, this is a different text I'm quoting from, he said something like, we must seize hold of this text and then we shall realize that it is our past which has prolonged itself into the present. We are it. He puts this in italics and he says, I mean, we, capital W, capital E. Yeah. Um, that's a deep insight. Somehow the Mahabharata is who we are. Absolutely. And that's, that's what makes the text ontologically real. Um, you know, they always say that as long as mountains stand and rivers flow, Ramayana's Valmiki will be read. Yeah. It's not a hyperbolic comment. It's not someone praising himself. It's <clears throat> when a poet or an author reaches something that is ontologically or psychologically real and true, it's always going to stand. Yeah. In, <clears throat> sorry. Um, Freud talks about Oedipus which is coming from Sophocles, which is such an old story, but it's still something we immediately somehow recognize and relate to and, you know, frame yeah. language in terms of. So also, um, the Ramayana story, uh, we frame our psychological destiny in terms of Rama and his heroism. Yeah. And, and these are just truths that uh, and that's that's what it means really for Vishen me to speak of continuing revelation in Hinduism. Um, we don't need to have some special way of philology in three dimensions or some bunkum like that to approach text. Texts approach us. And yeah, you have to be open for that. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, uh, the Mahabharata is the center of my life in many ways. It's, uh, I, I look to it for everything, not just for for wisdom, but also to to understand it, it takes the human condition outside of me and puts it in a textual narrative in my head. Yeah. And it it, it it builds this like symbiotic relationship that the world and the text are intertwined so deeply that whatever, and I think this is what he, uh, Vyasa means, whatever is found here can be found elsewhere, but what else not, it was not here is found nowhere, is the world itself is in that text. Yeah. And everything that you want to engage with or be a part of is in inherently in the Mahabharata yeah. um, because he that's why it's so massive that's why it's such a huge endeavor is is to capture everything about life in a way that allows us to think about it and then live it um, yeah. but thank you so much for your time uh, do you have any do you have anything else that you think you want to add uh, before um, I think just just sort of uh like looking forward to the next book. 
so yes, yeah, so yeah, uh, that's my question is first, uh, uh, what are you working on next? And then uh, obviously where people can reach you. So if you want to talk about what you're working on next. Um, so when we wrote the Science, this was, of course, they didn't know this was coming. Uh, but um, Ellie Franco then wrote a review of the book where he said, uh, you know, they've obviously these Indians, uh, being Indians and not so bright, have not realized what Indology is all about. And he then said the whole case for Indology as Indian philology was stated by August Schlegel. And that was the one claim he made that we don't understand philology and Indology is philology. So yeah. then, then came this book and that was <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, um, for that one statement we answered with about, I think it's a 600 page book. Yeah. The other claim he made was about history. He said that Indians have to be grateful to Indologists for giving them a history. Hegelian. Uh, you know, they don't possess their history and we've done, Western scholars, German scholars have done so much uh, for them. Uh, so he expected us to be appropriately grateful. And that's the other thing I wanted to mention. None of, I mean, the history they've told is a racial history. Yeah. The individual histories they told about texts, the layering of the Gita, the way the Mahabharata was redacted, that didn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, the scientific aspect, the objective aspect didn't stand up to scrutiny. The philology didn't stand up to scrutiny. So the final, the third book that vision I want to do is to show that history and race are somehow linked. Of course. And the history they've been providing is through and through a racial account of India. And uh, it's an invitation. When Indians start thinking historically, they're accepting this invitation to think of themselves racially. And it's an invitation where Vish and I just want to say, you know, not, not even regrets. It's like no regrets. Yeah, yeah. When, we're not attending this race history party that you're throwing for yourself. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. I think uh, that's a very solid point because history, I mean, for the most part, I mean, I think it started considered most people consider Hegel the father of of history right at least in the in the philosophical sense with his yeah. with the unfolding of the spirit over time and in very much a christian sense of the world yeah. um and history has kind of taken that role where even now nowadays it's a sense of where is this progressing to where are we going and that's why like people like francis uh, fukuyama comes out with the end of history as if we progressed to some place that naturally would have led there um and that's a very Christian, very uh, bounded sense of history. And I think yeah. Indians never had that. Yeah. There's, there's two things that are playing there. First, it's an eschatological history. Right. Like there's some final distant event, some messianic future we're headed to. Yeah. And that will be like the fulfillment of time. That will be the meaning of history. So that is very strongly... Uh, sort of embedded in the contemporary understanding of history and that yeah. reveals how it's really coming from its biblical precursor. But don't forget the other very Christian trait besides the eschatological is the congregationists, right? So we're all moving collectively as Indians. We are somehow at some stage of this journey. That's right. Versus as Germans or as German Indologists that are at a higher stage of the journey. There's that collectivist or Marxism will, of course, have it also that the congregation is the basic unit of analysis. Not the individual. Right. Exactly. 
And what the Mahabharata is giving us is simply, you know, the, the destiny of the soul is so singular. <laughs> you know, what, what happens does, I mean, yes, at the level of they're all warriors on the field. Yeah. They all have a collective destiny. But the, the way the soul actually has its destiny is so singular. Um, you know, being born in one family, you can cross yeah. over. Yuyutsu will cross over to the good side. Right. Arna will cross back to the Kaurava side. So it's constantly there's this uh, chiastic structure where crossovers are happening, showing that the soul's journey is so singular. Um, yeah, so. we, we, yeah, we could definitely talk more about this, but uh, I think it's uh, yeah. uh, a, a, a little bit of time here. So um, where can people reach, reach you if they have any questions or want to find out more about your work? And if there's a, any place they can maybe buy your work or read your work, where, where would that be? Um, academia.edu. Very simple. Go there, search for Vishwa Adluri or Joydeep Bakshi. All that stuff is linked. Uh-huh. And this book, it's expensive, but it's also open access. So on Academia, you can download the whole PDF. Okay. Um, I, and what I'll do is I'll put the link of your book also onto our site and onto yeah. this interview. Um, and how about Science? Is that a, a book that they can purchase too? Uh, Science they can buy. So uh, it originally came out from OUP New York. And then the version I have here says, I think, South Asia edition. Uh-huh. So it's a much cheaper edition for people in India, especially. I think it's available through Amazon.co.in. And I think this says only for sale in the South Asian uh, region. Market. Okay. Okay. Um, so there's a cheaper version that for Indians to buy. Uh-huh. Um, it's really not expensive. And then, then from OUP New York, of course, anyone can buy it. And it's also in libraries and stuff. Okay. Excellent. Uh, yeah. And so, then just text us through, through academia and reach out to Vision Me and, you know, keep the conversation. Now, is there, are, are you doing any talks anytime soon? Um, yeah. And if where, where? We're going to Delhi, uh, 6th of February, 6th to 10th. Vish is speaking at something called the Art Z Festival. Okay. And uh, that's like, it's not academic. It's going to be a general discussion on like this kind of Mahabharata and where we are now. Yeah. And then there's also, um, it's called Ihar and it's organized along with the Indira Gandhi National Center. That's in Delhi again, February 22nd to 24th. I think that weekend there's another set of panels. Okay. So uh, excellent. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, uh, Joydeep, this was an excellent conversation, uh, a lot of information, um, but I think our, our listeners and viewers uh, will be really excited to to have you uh, on with us. Uh, so thank wow. you again, um, thank you. and thanks for everything. Okay. okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.